We're continuing our summer in the Psalms and the part of it that we're calling Songs of the King. We're in Psalm 44 today. Psalm 44. This is a song of the king who allows trouble into the lives of his people. It's a sad song. In other words, uh, a, a lament. It is a song in a minor key, so to speak. And the psalmist in Psalm 44 is wrestling with the reality that even though God's people have been faithful, God has brought suffering into their lives. Public, painful suffering. There's great mystery in the way God operates. And Psalm 44, it doesn't resolve the mysteries. But what Psalm 44 offers is you offers you and I some, some encouragement, some practical hope, and an opportunity to shape our hearts no matter what our situations are in life today. But especially if you're facing some challenges, even suffering. Would you read with me God's holy, inspired, infallible, life-giving word? It's a long psalm, so we're going to start by skipping down to verse 17 through the end of the psalm. We'll start at verse 17 and read through verse 26, but Lord willing, we'll cover the whole psalm. So Psalm 44, verse 17 and following. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up. Be our help and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. This is God's word. Lord, bless now our, our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our lives, and even the whole world through your work in us. Transform us, shape us, mold us how you will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you go to school and you graduate, whether it's high school or college or advanced degree, and you go to find a job and it takes you a really long time and you don't get the job that you thought you would. 
you marry a, a wonderful woman and start to raise up a family and then she gets sick. She fights very hard, but liver failure leads to her death. You're alone and you have three young children, two boys and a girl. And by God's grace, you are blessed with another amazing woman who loves you and joins you in raising those children as if they were her own. You retire and your wife begins having memory issues. You find out she has a brain tumor. And she's gone in six months. And you bury your second godly, faithful wife as you live your godly, faithful life. You work hard for a company and they replace you with someone younger. You go in for routine surgery. You wind up in the ICU and you recover and are able to get functional and mobile again. But for the rest of your life, your arms tremble and shake uncontrollably until your death. These are all stories of different people, different faithful Christians that I have known and that I have walked alongside of through at least part of the journey of these little mini stories. Faithful, godly people. Stories that span a whole lifetime, though they're from different people. And they all point to the same reality. That God's people suffer. Even when they're faithful. Things come into our lives. And the reason for the suffering is rarely clear. We could point out times and even the stories that I mentioned where there was some sin and people in those stories had suffered for that. But when you really look at the picture, it is not at all something that you can point to and say that it's serious suffering related to significant sin. It's very often not. And my life bears that out and I'm sure yours does as well. That you suffer. And you often don't know why. And I'm sorry to say, you're probably not going to know in this lifetime why most of the suffering in your life happens or the suffering in your loved ones or the suffering in these people that I know. But what you can know and why a psalm like this is in the Bible is that God wants something significant from you. Even in the midst of suffering. And it is the most significant thing that you can do in all of your life. And in fact, it's what you need to cultivate in your whole life. That what God wants from you in the midst of suffering and in every other circumstance is for you to worship Him. To focus your life on Him, even in the midst of significant challenges and suffering that would lead you to lament as this psalm and so many others do. I don't know if you're aware of this. This would have been a good survey question to ask. What do you think the most common type of psalm is in all of 150 psalms in the Psalter? 
It's not a song of confidence. It's not a psalm of thanksgiving. It's not a psalm of praise or penitence or wisdom. The most common psalm is the lament. Where God's people express to God their feelings in the midst of their sufferings. And they cry out to God. They yell at God. They ask him to act. They say some things that, I don't know about you, but I've been like, I'm not sure I should say that to God. But that's what's in the Bible, even from King David and many other godly people. Why are laments the most common song? Have you ever thought about that? We live in a fallen world that's broken all around us. We live among fallen people who are broken all around us. We ourselves are fallen. <laughs> Bodies are broken. Our, our, our hearts are broken. We don't function the way we ought to. None of us are perfect. And there are so many ways things can go wrong. Murphy's Law says what? Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. That's an expression of the reality that we live in a fallen world. And it's the reason why very often God's people engage in lament because we have this inner need to relate to God, to express what's going on to Him, and He's okay with that. And the Psalms of lament especially teach us, you know what, you can bring anything. Bring your sincere, honest, suffering heart to God. He's not going to smack you down or reject you. In fact, this psalm really deals with that. But how does God feel about your suffering? How does God engage with you? And more than that, how does God want you to worship Him in the challenges and struggles? And it applies to in the successes and prosperity as well. And the, the short answer is that He wants you to worship Him. And the psalm will lead you there in all circumstances because it gives a perspective on life that includes suffering but does not stay there. It looks back on good times and it looks forward to better times and it deals with the bad times right in the moment. And through it all points us forward. So let's look at that. First of all, uh, un unpacking the psalm. Looking back on better days. The psalm encourages us to, to look back on better days. Days that we might say were days of glory. That's where Psalm 44 starts. Look at verse 1. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. Verse 2, you with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them our fathers, and you afflicted the peoples, those that were in the land, and you spread them abroad, the people that were originally there. You know, the, the psalmist looks back on those glory days and says, wow, God, you did some amazing things. Our fathers have told us, it's been handed down to us, how you brought us as a people into the promised land, and you kicked out those others for us. Those were really good times, Lord.
And that's a healthy view. It's, it's good to look back on glory days, to look back on the better days. It's good and it's dangerous, right? What happens is that we're tempted to both make those old days better than they were, right? The good old days. We're tempted to make them better and we're tempted what? To become frustrated that they're not here now. And we begin to maybe be a little bitter. Or we work really hard to recreate those glory days. Or we get bitter at the unfairness of it all. Why couldn't we have lived then? What made them better than us? I deserve to have the good old days again. And they're not here. That's the temptation. But if the Lord wants us to look back on better days, He's going to tell us how to do that. And how do you approach those days of glory? You know, the number one thing is to give thanks. To just appreciate it. Isn't it good that there were those good days? And you know, at this time, of, as the psalm was being written, they were still in the promised land. They were still benefiting from God's goodness to their fathers. They were still in that land. And it wasn't, you know, as miraculous a deliverance. In fact, they're in the midst of some suffering and some challenges and some losses. But it would be completely appropriate to thank God for that former glory days, for the better things that happened. In fact, because they're benefiting from it themselves, if for no other reason. You can give thanks for that. And it's completely appropriate to grieve. Later on, you know, after the people are exiled and, and they're brought back and they rebuild the temple and it's like, yay, the second temple is built. And everybody's rejoicing. There were older people saying, oh, weeping and grieving because it was not what it used to be. That's okay. It's, it's right and proper to grieve losses. The things are not what they once were. In fact... I intentionally try to structure our worship services that we call funerals or memorial services around those two themes. That we gather together to give thanks for a life of someone who's no longer with us and to grieve the loss that we experience. And you can apply that not just to lost because of death. You can apply that to anything. And in fact, that's how you keep from the bitterness. That's how you keep from wearing yourself out trying to recreate the past and the former glory days. And you have to do that because they're never going to come back. They are dead and buried. Yet there's still hope. And the hope begins to dawn when you recognize that those better days, those days of glory, were actually days of grace. They were days of grace. Look at verse 3. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. You were gracious to them. You know, that, that perspective that really, in a sense, the glory days make no more sense than the days of suffering. 
you can't explain the days of glory based on faithfulness alone because days of suffering happen to faithful people. The days of glory, you go out and you talk to our evangelists, right? They go out and they share the gospel, right? They hand out tracts. There's nothing, there's nothing. In some days, there's something. They're doing the same things. They're the same heart, maybe even the same words sometimes, but sometimes you get results. You see fruit. Why is that? Paul tells us. Why is that? In 1 Corinthians, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The fruit, the success, the prosperity, the days of glory, whatever you want to call them, are as much a result of God's grace or are only a result of God's grace. And they're as somewhat unpredictable as anything else. They don't come because of our ability or our actions beyond a level of faithfulness. God is not going to bless laziness. God is not going to bless unfaithfulness. But don't think that just because you are faithful, the results will come. Just because you read in Matthew 18 that if your brother sins, you go tell him his fault and you know, he'll listen to you and everything will be great, right? It says if he listens. You know, and then if you take someone else, and they, you, know, it's like you are called to be faithful. In the midst of that faithfulness, the way to guard your heart, the Scripture is telling us here, is to remember that those days of glory are days of grace. That it's all about God's grace, not your ability. John Calvin said this, The best means, therefore, of cherishing in us habitually a spirit of gratitude towards God is to expel from our minds this foolish opinion of our own ability. If you want to be habitually grateful, basically he's saying, is to get the foolish idea of your own ability out of the picture. To recognize God's grace. That the good things in your life require your faithfulness, yes, and God's grace. That's the only way they come. And the fact that you know Jesus is a result of God's grace, not of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us. It is God's grace. And what that does in the psalmist, as he rehashes these things, going back to the better days, the days that are of glory, the days of grace, he recognizes in verse through 4 through 8 that these, those are really days of faith. And in fact, he begins to do what we ought to do as we reflect on the past, that it blurs with the present and it, it molds and melds into our future, that we absorb it all and it's hard to keep the time sequence straight because we recognize I, I, this is what I'm called to do. This is what you were doing and this is how I will respond. Look at verses 4 through 8 and the days of faith. Verse 4, you are my king, O God. You are my king. Command victories for Jacob, for God's people. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. Looking to the Lord, then turns to himself. Verse 6, I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me, but you have saved us. Notice he went from the future to the past. 
he went from the, the present to the future to the past. I will not trust, nor will my sword save me, but you have past saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. And probably the sense there is we have been and we will continue to give thanks. You know, they've not just kept the faith of their fathers, but they have made that faith their own in the presence. In fact, that's the goal. When you look back on better days, please don't let that be, oh, I wish it was, and a longing for those days to return. Turn it into a renewed commitment and faith that God works in the past. That be strengthened in your commitment that, you know what? Because God was so gracious and faithful, I have the confidence to move forward today, whatever is facing me. That I will walk by faith, not resting in my own works. It's not about me, it's about God. Looking back is good. Those better days were good and give God the glory, which means you're going to give Him thanks for what you had and you're going to grieve what you've lost. And that will strengthen your faith always and prepare you for the challenge of suffering now. And that's where he goes next in the psalm, verses 9 through 21. We, we look back on the better days and now 9 through 21, we live now. We're living now in the bad days. Days of sadness, verses 9 through 16 talk about. He goes from this high tide of praise and confidence to this low ebb of, of dishonor and doubt feeling like God has rejected his people look at verse 9 yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor and do not go out with our armies you cause us to turn back from the adversary and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves you give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations you sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long, my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. That's, that's brutal. Clearly there's a, some battles and skirmishes going on physically. It could be a metaphor for other challenges in life, but it seems like there's probably some battles, frontier battles, or you know, the army of uh, God's people, and they're losing. It's as if God is not with them at all. They're getting beaten back. They're getting plundered and their stuff is taken away. And more than that, more than that is the emotional toll. And in fact, I think the emotional toll is because they're being faithful. But look at the, look at the words. You've rejected. You brought us dishonor. You caused us to turn back. We look like cowards. 
Verse 13, we're a reproach, scoffing, derision, a byword, a laughingstock. Verse 15, dishonor, humiliation. Verse 16, reproaches, reviles. It was just this overwhelming sense of rejection, humiliation, dishonor, brokenness. These are the days of sadness. Living in the bad days. Now in the bad days, they are days of sadness. And they often feel like days of darkness. Verse 19. You've crushed us in a place of jackals. That's a deserted desert place, most likely. Perhaps ruins, old settlements. You've crushed us in a place of jackals not fit for human life, and covered us with the shadow of death. We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's dark. It's isolated. Verse 24, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Now the light of verse 3 the end of verse 3, your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence favored them of old. Now we don't experience that. Why is this happening? And he doesn't give an answer, but he says, you know, this is, this is days of sadness and darkness. But they're also days of faithfulness. It's not sin. The, I think part of the reason this feeling is so strong of rejection and dishonor and shame, why it's all piled up is because they have the sense that they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing. Lord, we went where you wanted us to go. We're fighting the battles you want us to fight and we're losing. We look like fools. People are making fun of us. We're laughingstocks. You're allowing us to suffer. Look at verse 17 and following. <clears throat> all this has come upon us we have not forgotten you. We've not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? He knows the secrets of the heart. They're basically saying, my conscience is clear. I don't know, Lord, what else we could have done. We were faithful. We worshiped you. We served you. We did after the prayer meetings and everything else, what we thought you wanted us to do. And we're losing. We're getting humiliated. And it's not because of sin. It's, it sometimes is. So yeah, it's good to, to examine your life and maybe ask others, you know, is this happening? to me or to us because we're allowing some sin in the camp. And after, you know, a reasonable exploration of that idea, you could very easily get to the conclusion it's not because of sin. God's not going to bless sinful labors and those kind of things, but it doesn't mean that failure is rooted in sin. They were faithful. One commentator put it this way, the religion of hand and heart has been rewarded by a death sentence. They did everything they thought they were supposed to and it led to death. 
How do you make sense of it? It, it doesn't feel right, does it? It doesn't feel fair. I mean, you look at you look at the psalm, and there's really you can't find, humanly speaking, a justification of why would they suffer. And as it says in verse 12, you know, they're not only suffering, but it seems to be that, that you've sold your people cheaply. There's no profit by their sale. It's not like we're learning something from this, are we, Lord? Now, you can endure a lot of suffering, and many of you have. You know, you've traveled the globe, literally, in the hope of a better future and, and, and a better life for your family, for your children, more opportunity, those kind of things. You know, that, that, that hope is out there. You can endure a lot of suffering. You can work a couple of jobs. You can go to night school and work another job and power through with the hope that something better is coming. And God's people in this passage are wrestling with that reality. Is something better coming? Because I don't see it. It doesn't make sense. But in the final part, the psalmist gives us some sense, not a specific explanation for these events, but a broader, bigger hope beyond your suffering, beyond their suffering, beyond the circumstances even of this life. And it's a call for us to be leaning in to the best days. We look, look back on better days, we live now in bad days, and the call is leaning in to the best days, days of confidence. Look at verse 23. Here's some confidence. Would you pray this? <laughs> it's challenging. The psalmist just goes there. Arouse yourself, Lord. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Those are, those are commands. Those are imperatives. Wake up. Arouse. Awake! Do not reject us forever. Verse 24. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up! Be our help! Redeem us! For the sake of your loving kindness. The psalmist is picturing the Lord asleep while his people suffer. And they cry out, why don't you wake up? And they're saying, basically, don't you care that we're suffering? One of the commentaries made a great connection. Maybe you've already made it, too. This literally happened when Jesus was walking the earth. You remember the events and the story. We don't have time to turn there. It's one of my favorite passages. Mark chapter 4, 35 to 41. Jesus says to the disciples, let's get in the boat, let's cross to the other side. So they, they leave the big crowds behind and they start out, the fishermen, right? Most of them are fishermen. Uh, strong, manly fishermen. Tough guys, right? Working on the nets and everything else all night long, burly, carrying big things of fish. Right? They get out on the, on, the, on the Sea of Galilee. 
and a big storm comes, a great windstorm, waves breaking into the boat, the boat's filling up with water, and what's happening? Jesus is like, don't worry about it, I got it under control, you guys just trust me, right? No, Jesus is in the stern of the ship asleep. Jesus is asleep while the disciples are fearing for their lives, while they're suffering overwhelming storm, looking at death itself in the face. And they say to each other, oh, it's no problem, right? Jesus is with us, we'll be fine. No, they're like, Jesus, they say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? That's the challenge, brothers and sisters, to, to us. It's a call to, to faith to confidence to trust the Lord which is the heart of worship you know you, you can't worship the Lord you can't come into the worship space and sing to him and pray to him and listen to his word without opening yourself up and being vulnerable without sharing what's actually going on inside of you which would include Lord the stinks Lord don't you care Lord, I don't want to do what you want me to do. Lord, I did what you wanted me to do, and it's made everything a mess. Lord, I, I sinned and I repented, and they still don't seem to forgive. Whatever is going on in your heart, to, to take that to the Lord is to walk by faith, not by sight. Right? To, to look to him and rest in his promises of who he's revealed himself to be. Isaiah 50 verse 10 puts it this way. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Micah chapter 7 verses 7 and 8. As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. As Job put it, yet though he slay me, I will trust in him. That's the call to faith. And it's not easy to say, right? That's so easy to stand up here and preach that, right? To live it is much more challenging. And in fact, just to say live that is incomplete. So we've left out one verse in this psalm. It calls us not only these days of confidence, to lean in to the best days that are coming, trusting the days of confidence right now in the midst of suffering even, but to look to the days of victory. Days of victory. Verse 22. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered for your sake. What's he saying? He's saying, we are doing what you wanted us to do, Lord, and we are being killed. We were faithful 
in obeying your commands and we're dying. We are going and fighting the battles you want us to fight and we are losing. What he doesn't say is, are you with us or not? He doesn't say, don't you care? He comes pretty close. But he does not say that. In fact, what does he say? But for your sake we are killed all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And he ends the psalm. Redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Calling on the character of God. To say, God, I know that you are faithful. That, that's the Hesed word, that Hebrew covenant love word about God's faithfulness. Lord, not because I deserve it. Lord, not to show that you care or not, but because you are faithful. You are loyal. Lord, you are more committed to me than I am to you. You're more committed to me than I am to myself. You are faithful, Lord. Redeem us because of your faithfulness, because of your loving kindness, because it's for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Lord, we followed you into the boat, out into the ocean, out into the Sea of Galilee, because you said that's where we should go. Don't miss that in that passage in Mark 4 or the other Gospels where it appears. Jesus said, hey, let's go the other side, guys. And they all go, okay, sure, let's go. We'll follow you, Jesus. And a storm comes and Jesus is sleeping. Did he know a storm was coming? Yeah. He knows everything. What have you followed? What's the, what's, what's the thing you follow the Lord into? The storm you're now facing. And if you feel like he doesn't care, the place to direct that is to him. Don't you care, Lord? I'd encourage you to go beyond that and to say, Lord, I know you care. Work in this, Lord. Be with us. Let me believe you are with us, Lord. No matter how long it takes him to answer that prayer, know that victory will come. if suffering comes in the midst of your faithfulness. There will be victory. It's guaranteed. You might die, but what will happen? You will rise. And in fact, if you die for the faith, if you suffer for Jesus, the rewards are that much greater. The honors are that much higher in his eyes. And in the end, they won't matter to you either because you'll throw your crowns at his feet because it was his faithfulness that carried you through it's his faithfulness that will sustain you and in fact if you were listening earlier in the service when we read that section of Romans 8 that passage that we all love you might have noticed a connection to this passage that we're looking at right now in the Psalm 44 verse 22 he says in Romans 8 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Basically then, here's a bunch of suffering. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Will any of that separate us from the love of Christ? Romans 8, 35. 
than Romans 8.36. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Quoting Psalm 44 verse 22. And then he says those words of great defeat. Right? In all these things we are big time losers through him who loved us. Right? In all these things we are big time losers. Capital L. Is that an L to you guys? No, what does it say? Uh, NASB, I like how it puts it. And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer. We are super victorious through him who loved us. And the world's looking at you like, yeah, but you're dead. Right? You tried to witness to the, to the uh, Warunari people. I can't say it right. Those formerly called Aka. Uh, in South America. You tried to witness them and they killed you. And you were victorious. You know, in that particular case, Elizabeth Elliot spent a lot of time in sacrifice and suffering and saw fruit. Jim Elliot, he saw a spear. And he died. And he was victorious. You know, please... Please abandon the prosperity gospel that says to you, God wants you to be rich and happy and drive the best cars and have the biggest TVs and have everything in your life be really easy for you. He might, and he blesses some that way, but it's as, <laughs> it's as hard to understand why he would bless that person as it is to understand why he would bring that suffering to the other. And if you have been through better days, as everyone has, to look back and give thanks. Grieve those losses and recognize that those better days were signs of his grace, not something you deserved. Grieve them and give thanks for them. Recognize that, that the bad days aren't signs of your failure. They come upon people not necessarily because of sin. There can be sometimes no explanation. It's not easy to understand. Yet, they're not God's failure either. But in fact, if you will enter into those sufferings seeking to be faithful, those sufferings become fellowship with Christ in His sufferings. And who, oh, what, by the way was victorious through being nailed to a cross with the world literally mocking and dishonoring and making him a laughing stock. Was he victorious? Was he victorious? Was Jesus Christ victorious? Overwhelmingly victorious. So are you. So are you in Christ. Because the worst thing that can happen is you die. And the next thing you know, you will be reigning in victory. Where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. God himself will wipe the tears from your eyes. There'll, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth in which everything goes the way it's supposed to. Well, there's no more brokenness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tumors, no more cancer, no more tremors and uncontrollable things, no death. 
That's the victory through Jesus Christ. Those best days are definitely coming. In fact, your sufferings are a sign of that victory to come as you not only live with Jesus Christ, but you will rise with him. And the fact that you can weather those sufferings and endure them at all, looking to the Lord in the midst of all of that brokenness, to stick through that is a sign that he has given you grace and favor and will never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, he has gone before you to prepare a place for you. This is your God. And the call really is this. The midst of sufferings, it, it boils down to understanding who God is. To believe his promises that he is the king who not only allows you to suffer, but calls you to suffer with him, not for defeat, but for greater victory. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for helping us persevere through the, the heat and through the challenges of this life, even this morning that we've been through. Much less in the last week or month or year or over our lifetimes, Lord. Give us faith to look back on those better days giving thanks and grieving losses, Lord, dealing with the, the bad days right now and looking, O oh Lord, for the best days with confidence and with victory. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.